Welcome to Pushing Through. I am Tay Frazier, and as always, I am joined by the kid, BJ Armstrong. And today, we have a two-time NBA champion, one of the most respected figures in the game of basketball. But don't take it from me. He'll tell you himself, Mr. Brendan Schur. How you doing, Coach Schur? Tate, you were on my list of love people until that, but... Uh, yeah. <laughs> no, uh, you, know, it, you know, when you have a lot of respect, it just means you've been in the game and you've lived a long time. That's all that means, you know, so... Yes, I knew I was getting older when I was nominated for the Tex Winter Assistant Coach Award, and I was still coaching, so... And he was, <laughs> and that's when I knew I was getting older, yeah. You know, Co- you. Coach, you know... Uh, just for our listeners out here, you and I, this is my, this is my Yoda. This is my own mm-hmm. personal Yoda right here, right? This is, this is the wise where I, I get my information and I love this. I love this gentleman here. He's, he is truly, when I say humility, leadership and all of those things, you mm-hmm. embody all of that. And, you know, there are coaches and then there are lifers. You are a lifer. You're, you've dedicated your life to the game. And I asked you to come on today because there's been a shift, if you will, every so often in coaching and leadership and all of those things. And after the Clippers-Nuggets game, we agreed not to really kind of discuss it like we normally <laughs> would do. Yeah. And we thought this would be an opportunity to discuss. But I want to talk about leadership now and mm-hmm. what you're, you're, what you are seeing in leadership at all levels, collegiately, professionally, from the coaching position, because it has changed significantly over the last couple of years. And then we're at a different point now. And I would like to start there with you on what you see in today's leadership from the coaching position. Well, you know, coaching... BJ, whether it's at the high school, college, or professional level, what doesn't matter, frankly, what sport it is. Um, it's an incredible position to be in. It's one of the really positive words that you could have with a career uh, that there is. You know, when you're a coach, it's really not dissimilar to being a parent. Uh, it's about helping people. It's about it's about love. It's about serving, and it's about caring. And that's the key ingredients of coaching. And You know, I always say my definition of coaching is that you take players where they can't take themselves. Mm. You know, Michael Jordan needed Phil Jackson and Scotty needed Phil Jackson to take them where he can't. Kobe needed Phil, you know, and Isaiah needed Chuck, you know. And so that is and and it's no different in any sport. So that is that's the definition, my opinion, of what coaching is. You know, I drafted Doc Rivers as a 20-year-old out of Marquette, and I love him to death. I'm very biased about him. He's like you uh, to me. Uh, Watched all four of his kids get born while he's playing for me with the Hawks. And when Chuck and I were coaching, just prior to coaching you in Orlando, uh, Doc was an announcer for TNT living in San Antonio, and he came in, spent a few days with me and Chuck, and – we went into dinner and I told him, I really want you to consider getting into coaching. Mm. And because you have all what I think are the main ingredients to coach. You have great charisma. You have great relationship ability. You're smart as heck. You're a leader. You have all these things that I think, having been in the NBA at that point, 
almost 20 years that I knew worked. And I remember at this fabulous, very posh restaurant in Orlando, he turned to me and said, go F yourself. <laughs> I am, I am not going to, I ain't going to ever coach. You can mark that down. And now he's our second longest tenured coach. Mm. And, and, you know, and, and to coach 20 plus years in the NBA, it's like dog years. Okay. It's like a hundred years of life. <laughs> and, and this past week was like 20 years for him. And in the, the 70 days in the bubble, were also, it's like a whole year of coaching. Right. So the thing about coaching though, BJ and, and Tate is that, you know, we used to have a great saying from Chuck that, you know, and Isaiah taught me this, you can't get too high and you can't get too low. And so the highs you get when you beat a good team are incredible. The lows you get when you lose are they don't say it. I talked to Billy Donovan, who's another dear friend last week after he lost and his team didn't execute, you know, the final possession. And everyone said, Oh, I can't believe how bad the play was. Well, you know, it's a good play if the players execute and make a shot. It's a bad play if it doesn't work by the coach. And I told Billy and he had been, he's a hall of fame coach, basketball hall of fame coach. And I told him that day that, Till he coaches another game, he will think of that play, that two seconds, every day, probably five times. Till, mm -hmm. and already we were only four days removed, and he had already he can't get it out of his mind, and he won't. But you know, you and I have talked, and you know, coaching, and and you know, you be text winner, and more importantly, got a platform to coach that Phil gave him, and but Phil and Chuck became and Pat Riley became great coaches because their players executed under pressure. Can you say that again, coach? Cause you, okay. So coach, can, all right. Can I just hold your thought? Because you say things that are like so important. So you, you, you said something the other day we were talking and I wrote it down and I've been just trying to study it. You said the notoriety of a player is, is dictated by the execution under pressure. You told me this before game seven right? and the Clippers. And I wrote it down. And then you also, and then you follow that up with the notoriety of a coach is dictated by the execution of the players under pressure. That might be Doc. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> we, we, have, we have a lot of business going on. Yeah, 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 yeah. You, you, you know, if you got, if that's Doc, please no, take that call. No, yeah, if that's Doc, yeah, no, no, take I, that. We'll put him on the podcast. Yeah, so. yeah we'll put him on. <laughs> but can you talk about what that means? Hmm. Yeah, it, it's really simple. Michael Malone, literally. Coach Malone's, Coach Malone's dad. My, yeah. uh, Mike Malone, oh, uh, Brendan Malone's Brendan, son. Brendan Malone, yes. When you're playing at Brother Rice, he's like a contemporary of yours. You know, he's a young cat. He's he's a high school kid. He's hanging around us. But he's I don't think he really wants to be a coach. I don't know if he does, you know. But he's hanging around. But osmosisly, you know, having his daddy being a great, great coach and being around Chuck and being around the great players we had with the Pistons, you know, and now I listen to him in his post-game comments. It's brilliance. But he knows he, he he really became a really good coach because his guys, Jokic, Jamal Murray, and those other guys, they executed, man. You know, to make up 64 points in th the last three games in the second half, 
I've never heard of anything like that. <laughs> so he became a fantastic coach because he didn't make one shot. He might not have called a lot of plays, but his guys executed when the game's on the line. And the Clippers did not. So that's when your notoriety, uh, we, we said it, Kevin Durant, OKC, hell of a player, goes to Golden State, MVP, two straight finals, best player in the world because mm-hmm. he executed under pressure. That's, that's, just a, that's something I learned from UB Brown years and years ago when I first got in the league, when I was Tate's age, when I was a baby. When I, <laughs> I listened. I wrote it down too, Tate. I just couldn't believe you be saying that. And I'm saying, you know, you know, he, he was presented with the Coach of the Year Award. And instead of saying, hey, thanks a lot, he said the notoriety I'm getting as Coach of the Year is only because of these players executing under pressure. Mm. It made such sense. That's like 47, you know, 40 plus years later, 40 years later. And I remember it like I'm sitting there, yes, listening to it. And he's not talking to me. He's talking to the media. And mm. I never forgot it. You know, you, you, you told me, Coach, to go back knowing, you know, watching. I know you were coming on the show today. So I went back and I rewatched the Clippers game. Mm-hmm. To get a better you're a, understanding, you're a glutton for punishment. But go ahead. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Okay, so there are a couple of things that kind of stood out, right? The first thing that stood out to me was the as I was watching the game, I was looking at the reaction of the players on the bench. Like, I didn't see the energy of the camaraderie that you normally would see in a big game like that, right? Game seven, like everyone's yeah. like into the game. And but when I looked at the Denver, you saw the energy that was there. Mm. But talk to me about one of the things I want to ask you about is sometime you run against greatness, right? When we played against an Isaiah Thomas, there was a moment that you knew Isaiah was going to be Isaiah and there was nothing we could do. And you right. guys played against Jordan and you know, yourself along with your compadres, you guys designed the Jordan rules, right? You guys, you guys did, did your thing. You still won't tell me what the Jordan rules are, but you, you know. But it, the, it didn't really affect you much. But. <laughs> <laughs> but, but every now and then you'll see an emerging star. Yeah. And the thing is, and I think it's fair, you know, and I would ask, like, Doc, after watching this young man for six games, shouldn't there have been something that could have been done to think outside of the box to stop the rhythm of this player? Because he was playing and doing something that was just, like, I've never seen a player play like this at the five position. Mm. But is that is that a fair assessment of what was going on as I watched the game a couple times now? Well, you know, I think it, it goes back to, you know, I love Belichick, coach. Yes, his um, his thing is do your job, right? Everyone yes. needs to do your job, right? right? My job as an assistant coach is, even though I'm 18 inches away from the guy that's the best coach in the league and our dream team coach, I, my job is to constantly give him suggestions. Yes. He makes every decision. And I can't get pissed off if I, I'd say, hey, Chuck, that was a great idea. Why didn't you do it? Because that's his job to make the decision. 
And so, like, there would be some games we'd be playing the Lakers and the Bulls and and O'Reilly with the Knicks, and, man, I got ideas. I'm humming, and every play's working. I'm suggesting. And then there's a night, like, a, three or four days later, we're on the road, we're playing a bad team, and we're down 25, 30 points. And Chuck would just look over to me and he'd say, pretty quiet tonight. You don't have many ideas tonight, do you? <laughs> Yeah, yeah. The other day when we're playing in Chicago and stuff, you had all the ideas in the world. Yeah. Now tonight you don't have shit to tell me, right? Okay. <laughs> and so that you know, so I think that that's important. So do your job. So as an assistant coach, I think your job is to be ninety percent observational and get in a mode of thinking and suggesting. Ten percent emotional. If you look at the benches, some of the coaches were ninety percent emotional. And they're assistant coaches. Yes. Yep. And, and so you have to make sure you say, I have a saying, and you and I have talked about this, 90% of the great players in the greatest league in the world are role players. Mm-hmm. Maybe more. Okay? But when the guy that's 9, 10, or 12, or 13 thinks he's Kevin Durant or Jamal Murray and starts taking crazy-ass shots, then you know he doesn't understand his role. And so you have to define roles to your assistants, to your everyone in your organization. And that's the same in any business. And that's but people aren't doing their job. That's what you have to do. And it's so hard in a game seven, the emotions are so high to stay in, you know, the moment of doing your job. Mm-hmm. So the other night we're saying, what could I have done? And that's what I always replay after a game. I'm saying, and I'm and I know Doc is doing it. Right. What could I have done different? Yeah. What could I have done to help my team? You know, some people, and I, and I say this, and, and you know how much I love players. The game ends, the player goes home. No problem. I'm not saying he doesn't care, but average night, he goes home. Coaches don't sleep, especially the head coach mm-hmm. after a loss. Players have, are, are like children in that they have this wonderful resilience to bounce back, which they have to, to play the next day. Mm-hmm. Coaches, we're not very good at that. It lingers with us. But, you know, Chuck told me a long time ago, and a lot of times you've been with teams, BJ, where the next day when you come in for practice, that head coach is pissed off at you because right. you might not have, or someone on the team. And I thought one word of wisdom, Chuck said at midnight after the game, it's a new day. I come in, it's fresh. It's a, it's over. And I think that's what you have to do. You can't hold a grudge. You can't be pissed off. And so I think that, that this all goes into culture. And I think that's one of the great buzzwords misused also. Is that in every business, we want to have a great culture, every team we want to have. But, you know, when you look at the great teams in any sport, you look at the Bulls, you have an identity. And that's what identity is a culture. Mm -hmm. You know, you looked at the last dance, you saw a culture, but it was not it was not all holding hands, walking down the street together. (laughs) Neither were the the bad boys. Right. (laughs) But they had an identity, each team. And, And that's what I think is your culture. It's not some stuff you put on your website and say, you know, we're all going to like each other and stuff. No, it's a culture is the way you behave every single day. And that's cool. 
And that's, and so that's what you want to get to as a coach. You want to get your guys or gals to play every day and perform with that identity of who they are. Mm. And I, and I'm not sure if I look at it objectively and I do this with every team that I've seen in the bubble, what is their identity? What is Mm. the Clippers identity? I know what Denver's is. I know what it is. They're hard playing guys that are smart. They share the ball and they got two players that make the game so simple by the way they play. Mm-hmm. That's their identity. And now figure out how to stop us. And I think that's pretty good. Well, coach, what, what does, like, I love Doc, like you love Doc. Sure. And we know it's, this is, this is a tough time right now. Leadership. What, what, what can he do at this moment? What is he feeling right now? as a coach right now at this particular time. And, and and just tell me like, what did you see? Because you've, you've sat in that seat, right? Yeah. I mean, like I've never played in that many game sevens. I think I've only played in like two or three game sevens in my entire career. And then all of a sudden all of these pundits come out with, Oh, he can't win the big guy. The fact that he's been in that many game sevens says an incredible thing about his coaching career. Okay. That he's been, had an opportunity. What does he do at this particular time? And like, what is he feeling right now? It's ironic. My business that I have coaching you where yep. we teach coaches how to coach. He's one of my very best faculty guys. And uh, he came in, he's spoken several times for me, but one speech that he gave in Vegas was about, this was after Donald Sterling was removed as an owner. He came and he spoke to coaches from around the world on crisis management. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> okay. And that is what a coach has to do. He's in the middle of a crisis. When you lose game seven, there's no more games. It's not like, okay, it will be fine in the next game. There is no more games. So how does a leader handle that? He happens to be equipped to be one of the very best leaders there are. He has amazing poise. He has amazing ability. He's very emotional, a very, has great empathy. Um, one thing you saw the other day, he never points a finger right. at anyone. And, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, and that's a huge thing in leadership, you know, not to point fingers. Uh, but, you know, Doc is so comfortable with who he is. He, he's, not, he's not saying, feel sorry for me or anything. He feels badly for his players his front office, his owners, his owner. That's who he's, you know, he's not worried about Doc. He's fine. Doc's fine. He's worried about everyone else, just like a parent should if something happens to their children. Mm -hmm. And so I think he's emotionally equipped, leadership equipped to handle that. And last year, you know, he came and spoke and he gave one of the great leadership talks I've ever heard, but he, he focused on something that I think is really important in coaching. And I want to make sure I, I, I put it out there today to really be a great coach at, even at the professional level, he said, you have to coach your, every one of your players, like he's your own son. Mm. And so we see coaches in sport, you know, and I think we think of the violent sports like football and stuff where they're yelling, screaming, grabbing face masks, stuff like that. You know, we think of the Bob Knight persona, you know. Mm -hmm. But, you know, Doc said, I had to coach my son, Austin. I had to do that. 
and he taught me, he taught me how to coach better. And so I think that's a really important thing. And as a parent, and you have three children, BJ, you, you yep. would want someone to coach your kids like they were their parent. And, and, and then my thing is the winning and losing, t- hey, the winning and losing takes care of itself, right? You know, and, you know, we're all emotionally upset if your home team or your favorite team loses, right? But, you know, the biggest thing is that it, is he doing the right stuff? And, and the second guessing can never stops in sport. That's what makes it so much fun. It's the greatest reality show of, of all time is sport, live sports especially. Mm-hmm. So we watched a great, great <laughs> reality show the other night where we saw a team be way up and then lose. That's, that's like, wow. Mm-hmm. The next day, if we were really in offices, we would go, the water cooler would have been hopping the next day with people right. talking, right, about it, you know which is really, which is interesting, you know. And, and Coach, sir, I have to ask you about the water cooler. If you're the coaches, right, and you're all at the water cooler, you just watch Jokic, you know, have this crafty game seven where he is just, you know, we see the final pass where he just throws the ball over his head as the final moment just to say, like, this is what I've done. I'm having fun out here. What are the coaches saying? Are they saying, like, this is good for the bigs? This is good for basketball? Or are the bigs evolving? What, what does that sort of look like from the player side of it, I guess? Well, it, it depends what team I'm coaching at the World <laughs> Tate, if I'm the coach of another team in the league that wasn't in that game, oh, man, I'm having a blast, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But if I'm the one that it was done against, you know, and I and I was on the receiving end of that with BJ, you know, uh, when they, in 91, when they won their first championship, where we were the second best team in the world. Not the Lakers. Mm-hmm. We were the second best. The Lakers were not better than us. And they beat us. And, you know, so imagine being the second best in the world. And when we lost that series, you would have thought we didn't win one game the whole year. It mm-hmm. was, we were a total failure in our own eyes. That's what happens, you know, when, when that happens. Because you've invested so much. Mm-hmm. So, I can't even imagine being in the bubble, first of all, for 70 days. Can't even imagine what that would be like emotionally, you know, and stuff. But then to to go out like that, to have that swing, it's got to be so difficult, so mm. difficult. Mm. So, you know, the water cooler, it depends who you are and depends what team you're coaching, I think, Tate, really, to be honest with you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm quick break to get a word from our sponsor DraftKings. It sure was nice seeing the teams back out on the gridiron over the weekend. Lucky for us, that was just week one. There was no better place to get in on all the action than with DraftKings Sportsbook, America's top-rated sportsbook app. To add to the excitement of week two, DraftKings Sportsbook is bringing back their can't-miss offer. If you haven't tried DraftKings Sportsbook yet, head to the App Store now because you don't want to miss this. DraftKings Sportsbook is giving all new users the chance to turn $1 into $100 when they bet on any team. That's right. You can place a $1 bet on any team, and if that team wins, you win a cool Benjamin. How could you pass that up? If you're new to DraftKings Sportsbook, head to the app now to scout their latest offers. Bet with DraftKings Sportsbook, a sportsbook that goes wherever you go. DraftKings is, of course, safe, reliable, and secure, making it easy for you to deposit and withdraw your money at your own convenience. Download the top-rated DraftKings Sportsbook app now and use promo code LASTDANCE when you sign up to get this can't-miss offer. 
pick any team during week two bet one dollar on them and win one hundred dollars if they win it's that easy that's one dollar to win one hundred dollars when you use promo code last dance during sign up for a limited time only at DraftKings sportsbook must be 21 or older new jersey indiana or pennsylvania only eligibility restrictions apply see draftkings.com sportsbook for details gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER or in indiana call 1-800-9 with it back to coach sir you know, coaches, we look into this next the stick out to the West Coast since we're already hanging out on the West and you're a West Coast type of guy. I'm a Beverly Hills guy. I'm a road. Chuck and I were road <laughs> yeah, guys. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Window um, was our specialty. Yes. Lakers, Nuggets. And what do you see coming into this matchup here from a technical standpoint and and what adjustments would you make if you were the Lakers now you've you've had a chance to watch the Nuggets and, and and vice versa like coach Malone coming off this big high what what are you trying to accomplish from a coaching perspective yeah no I mean I, I and this is this is what makes great theater I think and tomorrow when they open up I guess or you know as we're, you know as we're taping this you know in a day you know anything that happens it's kind of like when we were just rolling through before you were with the Bulls, we were rolling through the league, beating everyone. We had 11 days off, and then all of a sudden had to play the Bulls. They came into the Palace and beat us game one uh, because we weren't ready. And uh, so the Lakers, um, probably they could probably be fitted for rings today, you know, for winning a championship. That's the way they probably felt the other night when they saw it. But, you know – I think the thing about these other guys, I'm not, I don't gamble. I'm, you and I don't gamble. So they're, they're, they're playing with house money, the Nuggets, right? Right. I think that's the expression that Barkley uses. Uh, but, you know, I think what they're doing is so I think they're going to be loose. I think they're going to go out and play. But Frank, Bo, you know, I think what Vogel's got to do, you know, he's got to figure out how am I going to stop that. Now he's had the opportunity to really study it. Um, and he's got some guys I think they can do it. But his bigs can't, you know, no offense to your guy, but, you know, but the bigs, it's a hard one. You can't, there's no one there to play Jokic, I don't think. You know, when he goes in a low post, yeah, but I don't know what he's going to do. He did a nice thing, you know, by getting the ball out of Harden's hand, you know, in the last series. So he did, he was innovative. I want to see what they're going to do with this one. And I'm not sure what they're going to do, but, uh, it's going to, you know, but Anthony Davis, I think, is going to have to, him and LeBron, I think they could probably switch it. And, uh, you know, and LeBron could end up on Jokic. I could see something like that because of his size and strength. Mm. That guy's that guy is something like we've never seen before, in my opinion, Jokic. I, I really don't, I can't remember a player like that. So unusual, so young, and, uh, and uh, has a great passion for the game. And Jamal Murray, I was looking yesterday when they named the first three NBA teams. That guy didn't make any of the three teams, Jamal Murray. And right now he's playing like a first teamer. Yes, he is. Yes, he Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, oh, he's... You know, I, 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 there's not many guys I wouldn't – I'd like – I that's, that guy to me is the epitome of a great, great modern lead guard. Mm. Yes. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Where he's like a combo and a lead guard. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, and this is a guy that when he played at Kentucky with Cal, he never touched the ball. You know, <laughs> he was a shooting guard, you know, came off. Absolutely. And when, Mike, when Mike Malone put him at 
point guard. I thought he lost his mind, you know, <laughs> and, and that, and that's the beauty of it. You know, he's done an amazing job with his guys there and they, and what they have is they have, they have that blend, you know, they got, you know, guys like Millsaps who have some age on them. They, you know, and they got some guys that are tough mm-hmm. and that's what I would think about. And if they had Will Barton, that's another stud. Yeah, no, no, I, that's now, really hurts him. Mm-hmm. Uh, what about on the East Coast? What, 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 what do you see? What, what, what do you see? These are two of your favorite guys. Now, don't play favorites on me. Now, <laughs> no, Coach no. Spoel and, uh, 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 and Coach Stevens. <laughs> yeah, no, Brad. Brad, I think uh, you know, has been you know he's come into the pro game and has just adapted so quickly. Uh, you know, he's considered to be one of the really excellent technicians in the game. He has he runs really good stuff. He's totally adapted his style of play from when he came in to what he does now. I mean, to think about that, you know, uh, just totally shifted everything he does. So he's really adapted to the analytics game. He plays a wide open five out offense. And Eric Spolster, I think, is one of the most underrated people by people that are not in the NBA. Uh, Eric, and what I love about Eric is that, you know, he started out in the film room. Right. You know, and then he worked his way up to be an assistant. And then when when Riles stepped down, he was not the top assistant at Miami. But he knew that that was the guy that needed to take over for him. And I think, you know, he's he's uh, super humble. Uh, He's incredibly intelligent, uh, but he has these amazing relationship skills that are, you know, he, he knows how, what he's exactly doing. And he has, there's a great word that UB Brown uses in coaching. You have to have presence when you're coaching. Eric Spolstra and both Brad Stevens have incredible presence. You know that they are in charge. The credibility with their players is off the charts because when they get in a huddle, they know what the hell they're doing. Mm-hmm. When you get, And you've been in the huddles with some coaches, BJ, that didn't know what they were doing. And you meet in one minute, you can lose a a team, you know, and uh, this, this guy, both of these guys are fantastic. Uh, Both guys, you know, uh, will play zone. They'll change. And they've never done that before. Both Brad in college never played zone. Uh, When, you know, and Eric Spolster was Riles man to man, you know, when, when Riles was at, you know, showtime with the Lakers, you know, they're running up and down. They didn't guard a damn soul. You know, all of a sudden they come out to New York and they got to play against the bad boys. And you would have thought it's like one of those sequel to the movies, bad boys two. Three. <laughs> right. they, they were, they were insane how hard and physical they were. Right. And so that became Riles style on the East coast and in Miami. And they were physically as tough and imposing a, a team and that that was pat's identity and style and and now for eric to go in there and some nights say eric played i think the second or third most zone of any team in the league the last two years mm. to be able That's to been... do that and shift away you know and so i think you know if those guys when they get to the finals if they were ever going against either team they're going to show you some different things because a big thing in the nba bj is when you're playing against a great players, how do I break his rhythm somehow? Mm. That's why I loved Nick Nurse all of a sudden. And, you know, even though Golden State didn't have its people, you know, he goes boxing one on Steph Curry last year in the finals. 
to the point that the announcers didn't even know what the hell he was doing. Right. And then, okay. yeah, and then afterwards, they, you know, they figured out what he was finally doing when he, you know, then one of their guys, like Van Fleet, is face guarding Steph. And in the post game, they ask him, when did you, how many times have you ever played boxing one? He said, I just told the guys in the huddle what to do. He never practiced right. it. That's pretty good coaching to be able to convince your guys to do that. Yeah, hey, hey coach, what what about uh? Because we can, well, we we we'll, we we'll talk all day anyway. But I want to ask you about two coaches in particular. Okay, Coach Bud in Milwaukee. What's kind of his mindset, and Coach D'Antoni, in and huh? down there in Houston. But, okay, let's start with Milwaukee first. Okay, what is going on here? Because clearly. You know, you had regular season, then you got bubble, then you got the playoffs. Mm. Like, what what did you see, technically speaking, on some of the things that happened with that team? Because obviously, you know, like, he, coach of the year, he's got a great player. But what, what did you see, technically speaking? Well, I think what happens is, uh, you know, I've learned in this, is that you never know a team until you actually, A, coached it, or you never know a player until you coached him. You know, the guy might play against you and score 30 points a game, and then you trade for him, and you say, God, what an asshole he is. No wonder they traded him to us, you know. Uh, but, but Bud is really an innovator in that he has designed this five-out offense, which is being run throughout the league, and he started in Atlanta. Could you explain that to us, Coach? What what is a five-out offense? Yeah, and it's something that, you know, wasn't in the game when you and I were, you know, there – Basically, if you can picture, there's five players that are outside the lane. So if you can picture the first two players sprint down the court, on, if they don't have a three-on-one, three-on-two fast break, and they run to the corners. The next two players down without the basketball, they run to the what we call the slot or the wings. And then whichever player has the ball, he brings the ball down slightly off-center he can bring. I'm sorry. He can bring the ball down either sideline, and so we ideally we would like. Let's say he's bringing the ball down the right side of the court. Then we would have someone at the top of the key and someone at the left uh, slot or wing area. So we'd have both corners filled, both wings filled, one with a ball and the other one player at the top. And so the no one is in the lane. And so what they want to do is they want to open up the court have you worry about three point shots and now they're going to play three on three basketball, two man basketball. But now, now your help side defense is way out. And if you, and if you, you know, collapse and get your weak side defense in BJ, you're giving up shots to the opposite corner. Mm. So what they've done is they basically have used that as a style of play and it's been adopted by, I would say, 70 to 80 percent of the teams in the league which is amazing you know i love copycat you know all sports are copycat spread offense in football etc west coast offense in football years ago but now this five out has become the nba copycat offense mm. so it's a great thing so if you got the best player in the league which they do and all of a sudden you're playing back-to-back games you don't have time to prepare for it and so now all of a sudden you go into the seven game series i can lock into one team for seven games and i think that's where all of a sudden teams have said we got to make this a slower game 
we got to make it a half court game and make them play half court. And mm. what we saw, and what we saw Miami do was frankly something we never saw in regular season. They love to put Giannis at the top, and so he just drives. You collapse, and they throw it to three point shooters in the corner or on the wing. And they put Brooke Lopez out there in the wing even. Mm-hmm. So there's no one big underneath the basket. So what Miami did was they took the two guys that were on the wing and they put both one foot in the lane. And then they had the guy guarding Giannis at the top of the key, not even at the three-point line. So they made a wall, like a three-man wall, to not let him drive. And said, throw the ball to either wing. We don't care. And we'll recover and you know what? They had not seen anything like that. And then what happens, like the Jordan rules, guys that are good shooters, when it's wide open, they don't make a shot under pressure, all of a sudden that arm gets shorter. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and, and I think that's that's kind of what happened to those guys, you know. Mm-hmm. And they don't have a lot of half-court offense. So when they had to run half-court offense, that's not their strength. Mm-hmm. And what about my good friend down there in, in Houston? Our good friend, free agent. What about our good friend, Mike D? The free agent. That was great. That, I, I love that announcement, by the way, with Coach D and Tony. But what about our good friend down? What about our good friend down there? Well, Mike, Mike, you know, Mike, you know, is the second oldest coach in the league, but he's yet he's one of the most innovative, you know. And mm-hmm. when he he crafted his skills, he was a great player, BJ, in uh, mm-hmm. in Europe, and uh, fifteen years as a pro player in Italy. And, uh, and then he became a coach there and really was an excellent coach. And when he came over as an assistant to the Nuggets uh, years ago, he tried to bring his ideas about how to play. And he really didn't get a chance to use them until he became the head coach at Phoenix. And like anything else, you know, originally he had Steph Marbury, my guy Steph, <laughs> as his point guard. And then they traded him to the Knicks. And when he had some cap space that summer, Mr. Colangelo went out and got Steve Nash. Right. So mm-hmm. all of a sudden, Steve Nash, Amari Stoudemire, that became quite a team because you had a wide open system, seven seconds or less he wanted to play. And they went up and down the court, but they, we never saw a team, I don't think, run the break like them because what their whole philosophy was, similar concept, except the last guy down the court was Amari Stoudemire. He would come over and set a moving drag screen for Steve Nash, right? You know, like a little, almost like a pick play in football, right? You know, mm-hmm. for a wide receiver. And Steve Nash's job, though, was to push the ball down the court and Mike D'Antoni said, and beat the guy that's guarding you one-on-one every time take the ball to the basket and make people come in and help and pitch it for three pointers. And so, so when they practiced BJ, they, all they did they, after they loosened up is they played for 40 minutes, nonstop 40 minutes running time of just running up and down, up and down. And you know what? They, they crafted something that we had not seen. And uh, it was one of the hardest teams for me ever to, put a defensive game plan against because whatever you did, if you switched their pick and rolls, you know, Mari would kill you. Uh, you could, and then your big couldn't stay in front of Steve Nash. So it was really hard. But then when he went to Houston, uh, I thought he became, you know, he went to the Knicks and he had mellow there, you know, and stuff. And he, and I thought he adapted really well. 
uh, didn't have the personnel, but he did a good job coaching. And then when he went to Houston and got the job there, he take James Harden and made him a point guard. And James had always been a two guard mm -hmm. and, and made him a point guard. And I, I said, what the hell is he doing? You know? <laughs> and he told him he was going to lead the league in assists. He didn't lead the league in assists, but he averaged 11 assists a game his first year. Mm -hmm. And and they played up and down, and James was unguardable. Uh, then it got a little bit the last couple of years, I think, to more James dribbling, you know. But as a head coach, Steve Nash, MVP twice. James Harden, MVP. It's pretty good. Pretty good. <laughs> yeah, pretty good. Yeah. So, you know. But I think Mike's an amazing guy. He's uh, got great temperament, uh, very competitive guy. But, un, you know, uh, players, I think, love playing for him because it's freedom at, to the utmost. And so what, what you learn, I think, BJ, in this league is that there's 30 right ways to play, you know, and, and, and that's okay. And so whoever hires Mike to be a coach, they're going to play his style, and, and, and that's what they think is the right way to play. It'll be he, he's the best teacher of it, I think there is. And Bud, the thing about him is 19 years as an assistant to Pop, and usually when you're there that long, and then you go become a head coach, you usually fail, mm -hmm. because sometimes you see it in football a lot. Because all of a sudden, you know, you're not Belichick. You know that Belichick's assistants rarely really do a good job coaching as a head coaches. Because he's he's so organized and so structured, but they're great defense coordinators, great offense coordinator. But I think, you know, I think we're, you know, Bud has done an exceptional job in Atlanta and this. So, it, you know, it's two years in a row to lose when you have a better team. I think it really hurts. Mm. Well, Coach Sir, we appreciate you coming on and sharing your knowledge here. We could talk to you all day. I, oh, I know that. That's it. <laughs> I, I I I want more. I want to ask you about you know college offenses. I want to ask you about what's next after Coach K and Roy Williams and those guys leave college basketball. But maybe next time, unless you got some thoughts on that. Do, now. Man. I don't have anything to do. What do you? Who's not on the timer? Let's go. No. <laughs> Well, well, I can't ask you that, Coach Sir. If you're here, can, can you just say, like, uh, the, the offenses, like, we used to know these coaches, right? We know the motion offenses, Coach K, and you would have these identities. Do we see that being the case moving forward, looking forward? I know that's a lot to ask of you to project out, but it, will that be what we see in college? The system staying in place? In college? Mm hmm No, what you're seeing with the one-and-done player is the player is the system. Mm. You know, Zion Williamson is the system. You know, when 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 – when uh, Dean Smith, Coach K, Bob Knight, when those guys are there and the player stays mm -hmm. three or four years, like BJ, you know, then, you know, the great Lou Olson, guys, George Ravlin, guys like that, they put in a system and they can develop from a freshman to a sophomore to a junior to a senior and the player gets better. But when you're there, some of these guys don't even unpack their bags, you know, <laughs> so as, as players. So I think it's really hard. So what they do is they get these, some of them great head coaches, they get a, they get a condensed playbook. Mm. I think John Calipari is so gifted as a coach because he understands that all of his good players, the goal is to get them out in one year. And that's like, that's like if you, the kid was in the, a uh, school of business 
and he's trying to get him a major job with Apple, Google, Microsoft in one year, you know, and say, so he's trying to teach him all he can to be successful. I mean, think about, it. you know, Jamal Murray's there one year mm-hmm. and he's from Kitchener, Ontario. You know, he hasn't seen except in AAU basketball, you know, other good players. I mean, so for him to come and do what he's doing, I, I think, you know, it's a, it's an amazing thing, but, uh, you know, college ball, you know, I don't think it's much about the systems anymore, unfortunately, because mm. those are great areas of coaching. The, those coaches were absolute stars, and that's who we learned from. But now the focus is on recruiting, 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 unfortunately. Mm. 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 Well, I appreciate that insight, and unfortunately, I think I, I agree with that uh, synopsis of the college basketball game. I, I still beckon back to an earlier era uh, for for what I would want it to be with the Dean Smith days. But you're you're 100 percent right. Thanks, I appreciate that. <laughs> Coach, last thing, last yeah, thing. Tell me about tell me about coaching you. Tell me about mm. t- tell me what's going on. The, the pandemic, the, the the all of the things. I know yeah, every year I, I I come down and. You're kind enough to let me, you know, view all of the coaches that come and speak. What's going on with coaching you and everything you have going on now? Yeah, it really hurt us last summer, you know, with the pandemic because, you know, we run the one big event in Vegas, you know, where we have all the NBA coaches. That's our NBA faculty of coaches Uh, and people, coaches from all over the world come and that's really neat. Uh, And then now we're expanding to college coaches doing four or six college clinics, but we don't know when we're going to be able to get into a gym and do this. And so, you know, after 47 years of coaching, what I want, what I really want to do is I want to make an impact on coaches throughout the world, you know, so coaches that listen to our podcast each week or buy our videos, they're in 80 plus countries now, you know, mm-hmm. and, but, and so that's, you know, so, I don't want to, I, I love coaching 12 or 15, you know, back in the day when, you know, in the NBA or 15 players now, that's fun. But I want to make an impact upon thousands and thousands of coaches. And so that's where I'm leaning in life to do. And I just hope the pandemic starts to cooperate a little bit because we, we have events, frankly, all over the world coming up, mm-hmm. uh, clinics and stuff where we're teaching. Uh, and it's hard to do by Zoom, you know, hard to do, you know, but and but I, I just think that there's so much. It's like in any profession, you can never stop learning. And that's what and that and that's I, that's why I, I love our conversations, because you never stop learning. And, and that's what, and when you do stop learning, then we turn the lights out. You know, and then so, you know, so, you know, so I'm learning every day when I talk to people, you know, and I learned today that Lindsay, you know, Michael and Tate are the most important people on this podcast, <laughs> not you and I. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, Coach Sir, we appreciate you coming on, pushing through and sharing the knowledge. And uh, honestly, BJ, he was so excited for this and you lived up uh, way beyond my expectations. So I appreciate you coming wow. on. Uh, <laughs> you, you know, I, I'll make sure that uh, I'll send you some of my clips so that I can update the tape. Some of the there you go. That's uh, perfect. You guys are great. I listen every week to everything. You get uh, great guests, great guests, and I and I'm glad you're protecting my gut. <laughs> I'm doing Love my best, you, coach. coach. Love you, coach. Love right, you. Man. You be well. Okay, be good. Thank you, I'll sir. talk to you later. Okay. Bye.